The final deadline to apply to many colleges for next fall is just a few days away. And this year, the application process for high school seniors has been different because of a landmark Supreme Court decision that came down over the summer. The court ruled to ban race-based affirmative action in college admissions. Basically, colleges can no longer consider students' race in weighing their applications. But the guidance about what that means in practice wasn't straightforward. There was some confusing guidance about whether students can still mention their race in college essays that immediately sent colleges consulting lawyers to try to figure it out. But as the adults are sort of scrambling, the teenagers who are trying to apply to college of all different kinds of races are totally reevaluating where they have a shot, where they're willing to apply, where they think they're going to automatically get rejected from, if they're going to write about who they are in terms of race in their essays. And they are sort of entering this weird, crazy wonderland where there aren't really guidelines because this is all so new. That's education reporter Hannah Neatonson, who has been following the fallout of the decision and what it means for the admissions process. Immediately after affirmative action fell this past summer, Hannah reached out to high school seniors. She wanted to understand how they were grappling with this new reality and how it should or shouldn't change where they apply. Two students were willing to let her follow them through the admissions process. Cole Clemens, a senior in Tennessee, and Damar Goodman, who lives in Georgia. They stuck out to me because they were so similar. They were both really hardworking, had put a lot of thought into this process, were giving me really nuanced, complex answers about how they felt about it all. But they were also different in sort of some fundamentals, which is that Cole, who is white, was starting to think about, should I apply to more Ivies because affirmative action is gone? And Damar, who is black, was sort of feeling like, I can't apply to the Ivies I once dreamed about. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and it's Wednesday, December 27th. Today, the consequences of the Supreme Court's decision for two high school seniors, and what we can learn about how this decision could change higher education going forward. Let's just start with Cole and tell me a little bit more about who he is, where he's from, and what were the things going on in his life when this Supreme Court decision came down? So Cole is from Tennessee, Franklin, Tennessee. The average income there uh, is above $100,000. It's quite a nice area. And Cole is one of these kids who has had a lot of opportunities, but he's taken advantage of every single one that he's been offered. So he's straight-A student, top ACT score. He's involved in a ridiculous number of AP classes and extracurriculars, uh, Model United Nations. He was in a play this year. He also was part of two films that got screened at the All-American High School Film Festival in New York. A really multi-talented kid um, Mm -hmm. and a sweet guy. When this decision came down, he was already scrambling for a really packed senior year, already had his sights set on top colleges. Um, But he had really only ever thought about one Ivy, which was Columbia, his dream school. And Mm. so this led him to think of others. Mm. And so what was happening for Cole when the Supreme Court decision came down? So he was at a University of Memphis International Studies program, which is how he was spending his summer, because that's the kind of kid that he is. (laughs) And he got a New York Times alert on his iPhone about the decision. 
and he showed it to the person sitting next to him who was his roommate, who was Korean-American. And what Cole remembers the student saying was, this is going to help me. Hmm. And Cole, who had just been feeling shocked, sort of realized for the first second there, wait, this might help me too because I'm white. Say more about that. What was the kind of like thinking going through his head and what he described to you of that moment? In the moment, it was mostly shock. And there was immediately, as he started pondering sort of in the next couple of days, whether he could expand his list of IVs, there was also immediately a sense of, is it wrong to do that? So the way Cole described it to me, he's always known that he's had advantages, and he's also known that he's worked really hard. And his parents have worked really hard, too, to give him some of those advantages. I definitely have privilege. For example, for the ACT, right? I was able to go and get private tutoring for that and bring up my score. Like, I brought my math score up six points because of that, I feel like. And not everyone has that ability. But just knowing other people can't, and they're also applying to those same schools as me, and I know they've probably worked really hard to do it their own way. I feel almost bad in a way. Those people have worked so hard, and I've just been able to use the privileges I have to get to the same spot as them. I think he felt like this was yet another advantage being given to him, and it felt unfair, this one, because as you said to me, you know, if his boost in chances at a top school comes at the cost of someone else's chances going down, that makes him very upset. And that's what it felt like. And so he was kind of weighing all this on a somewhat personal level, that he's thinking, well, maybe I should apply to a few more ambitious colleges, but then, you know, would that hurt other kids who are also trying to get into the same colleges and now might have a tougher time because of this decision from the Supreme Court. Exactly. Kids who haven't had the opportunities that Cole knows that he's had. So on a personal level, it's really confusing because on the one hand, it seems to him, based on what he and everyone else is reading and what researchers have found, which is that the end of affirmative action is likely to decrease Black and Hispanic enrollment at top selective schools, possibly give a boost to white and Asian students. He's feeling like, well, this is going to boost me personally. But it makes him feel guilty because it comes at a cost to other students who he thinks are equally deserving. And then there's sort of his larger sense of the national picture, which is he thinks it's a net negative for America. And he also, again, it affects him personally because he's a little worried about a possible drop in diversity at some of the schools where he really wants to go. Hmm. So diversity is something he really cares about, and we talked about that a lot. Hmm. Um, And he is worried that what this means is that a place like Columbia is going to be mostly white or mostly Asian. That's an interesting tension there where he's like, I want to go to the school. I think that I might have an easier shot of getting in. But also, like, the place that I want to go is a place that actually represents America and has that diversity that people think is going to be affected by the Supreme Court decision. Exactly. His high school is 83 percent white and his hometown is very white. And he really first realized what that meant and what he might be missing when he joined Model United Nations um, in high school. And he met kids from other backgrounds, black kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids, kids he hadn't had the chance to meet before, made some good friends. And so he really wants his life to play out in a diverse setting. And he's worried that this ruling endangers that. So with all of that twirling in his head, how does that affect what comes after in his application process, like the decisions that he's making and how people are talking to him about those decisions? 
Well, he's ways in his mind for a long time, do I expand my list of IVs? Can I add past Columbia? And so a couple days after the decision comes out, he goes into Google, and and I totally related to this, he typed in prettiest Ivy League campus into the Google search bar, which is, I feel like, exactly what I would have done, too. Um, also, I feel like it tells you a lot about how a lot of college students are weighing this decision, and oh, where yeah. it's just like, what's the prettiest? What's the, Where's the biggest party school? Where's, like, the, you know? Absolutely. Um and yeah, so he, he's looking through these pictures, and I actually did the same Google search myself later when I heard this is what he'd done, so I could see what he pulled up. I, I mean, I'm in suspense here. Of, like, <laughs> what is, in fact, the prettiest? <laughs> well, it sort of depends what you think um, is I prettiest. Think my vote would probably have to be for Princeton based on the pictures, but he actually chose Dartmouth, and that was because uh, the sort of scenery reminded him of his favorite state, which is Maine, even though Dartmouth is not in Maine. And he also decides maybe if he has time, he might go for Harvard, too. And basically what he came to is that he's had all these opportunities, and he knows that. He also knows he's worked really hard. Um, while I was reporting on him, he got a notification that he was a national merit semifinalist, uh, which is a award that's based on how well you do on the PSAT. It's a big deal. It's prestigious. And he sort of thought, you know, I've been given all these opportunities. I've taken advantage of them. It's gotten me thus far. I think it's my duty to continue to take advantage of opportunities and to use that to give back, ultimately. And so he decides to go ahead and, and add the IVs that he's interested in. And you also got to kind of hear the conversations that he was having with his college counselor, right? Yes. Um, he had a his former teacher sign up to be sort of his Common App essay consultant. And on their very first meeting, they sort of talked through what might you write about. Um, and it was really interesting because the issue of affirmative action actually did come up where Cole was starting to talk about, well— you know, I could write about this moment where I was really scared of public speaking. And then I had to get up in front of 700 people and give a speech because he was campaigning to lead Model United Nations. And the essay tutor actually said to him, you know, that's interesting. I see a growth piece there, but I don't see a diversity piece. And you're missing that. I suspect, and I could be wrong, because nobody knows the answer. Obviously, as you know, that the uh, the affirmative action is gone. And so every school has had conversations about what they can do, I'm sure, to keep diversity in without actually having to do it. And I could be wrong, but I don't believe you have any inherent diversity pieces. I don't know. So you, st- I, I think that an appreciation for diversity is going to be a pretty strong realization and sales pitch to different schools. Um, mm. It's not the only one, but I, I think it's something that could could be what they're looking for, potentially. What is a diversity piece? He didn't, you know, specify, but I think it's just the fact that Cole is white, hmm. basically. What I would do if I did that one would be to pivot that a little bit, the outgoing catalyst, whatever, to appreciating other cultures. Um, you know, now that I've been more outgoing, I've had the opportunity to interact with people through UN and through others that I never would have otherwise interacted with. And it's opening my eyes to all kinds of possibilities. And I'm going to champion those diverse cultures, you know, when I go. That's mm-hmm. the sales. 
I'm going to be a champion for interacting with people that you wouldn't normally expect. And in that moment, Cole was sitting there and he actually felt thrilled because he really cares about diversity. This has been an animating principle for him. Like I said, he's he, you know, he discovered what his school was missing through Model United Nations. And he really wanted to write about this. And so when his essay tutor said that, he actually felt thrilled that he would get to write about something that really deeply matters to him. But he was a little worried because as I talked through it with him, he does recognize that other white teens might be making similar arguments right now to schools um, about how they care about diversity. And so he was a little stressed that, you know, he could get his passion across as the, the real passion that it is. After the break, we hear from DeMar Goodman, who changed his application essays and his list of schools in a different way. We'll be right back. I want to put a pause on Cole for a second and then come to the second student that you spent time with, Damar. Tell me a little bit about him and where he was at this summer when the Supreme Court decision comes down and he is thinking about how it's going to affect his life. So Damar is also just a great kid. He is very high achieving. He is student body president at his high school. Uh, He's from an underserved area and he wanted to join the student body Council because he wanted to help advocate for better resources for his school, um, which has a bit of a reputation for drug use, he told me. Um, and Damar told me, you know, for a long time, he sort of had to disprove a lot of people's assumptions about who he is based on where he's from. Again, it's a, it's a poorer part of Atlanta. It's a largely black part of Atlanta. And he has sort of throughout his life, as he put it, had to show people that he's more than what they might think he can be. But he's into politics. He wants to go into politics. Uh, He has political heroes, of whom the first and foremost is Barack Obama. (laughs) And then it's uh, John F. Kennedy. And he actually collects lapel pins. So um, I first started collecting lapel pins maybe a couple years ago. My American flag pin was my first lapel pin I got at one of my Christmases. Can't quite remember which one. Because politicians oh wear them, you know, the lapel flag pins. Oh, man, that's so endearing. <laughs> and he, he just, he loves what they, what they symbolize. Because to him, the flag lapel pins symbolize what, you know, could be so amazing about America and its politics. It really started because I saw those guys up there and a lot more wearing their lapel pins. And I always thought it was cool enough to, really to me, the lapel pins meant a lot more than just metal on a suit jacket. Tell me about um, his decision-making this summer and how that started to change when um, the Supreme Court came out with this decision. So DeMar had had a primo school, his dream school since middle school, and that was Harvard. And that's because Obama went to law school there, JFK went there. It felt like the training ground for his political heroes. He sort of called it in his head the politician school. Like, if you want to be a successful politician in America, you have to go to Harvard. (laughs) Um, And then slowly, as he he always does his own research, he's a very self-driven kind of guy. And so he was doing more research and he realized, hey, Cornell has a great law school and a lot of people in the realm of law that I admire came from Cornell. And so that becomes his second favorite Ivy. 
And for a long time, sort of between middle school and 11th grade, he is determined he's going to go to Harvard or Cornell. He starts researching a little more his junior year, and he's sort of looking at their admit rates, um, and he's looking at his grades, which are good, but he does have a couple Bs in there. He has an ACT score in the 85th percentile, and he realizes this might be a little bit of a reach, but he thinks that with affirmative action, he still has a good chance. Then the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action, and that same day, uh, he, like Cole, was at a... uh, you know, an intensive summer program. In his case, it was uh, conducting epidemiology research at Georgia Tech. And he sort of doesn't think about it while he's busy with his research. But the minute he gets home, he calls his best friend, Quentin Carter, who's 18 and just started at Morehouse College and has sort of been walking DeMar through the application process. And he literally says, as best he can remember to Quentin, safe to say Harvard is out, right? He immediately crossed Harvard off his list. Really? Immediately. Wow. That, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, talk me through what message he felt like he was getting from this decision. He felt that colleges had no incentive anymore to care about race. Just none. And he felt that race, it's not all he is. It's not all anyone is, he feels. But It's a big part of who he is, and it's a big part of the resources he's had to fight for, the stereotypes he's had to fight against. And so it felt really unfair. It felt like colleges were now being told they can't consider this vital aspect of who a person, especially him, is. And he he sort of had recognized that he had some consciousness that you could still write about race in the essays, but it, it felt weird, and he ultimately felt like it wasn't worth it. And it's interesting, he had actually always thought that affirmative action was a flawed system. He thought it was a little clumsy to rely on race like that. But he thought it was necessary to help remedy injustice in this country. And he was most of all just really bummed that it had to happen his year. And so as he was thinking about Harvard and schools and thinking that college admissions counselors just don't have any real drive to consider race anymore, he basically decided... I'm not going to go for Harvard anymore because seeing that rejection letter, that would be too painful. And why is it not worth just tossing your hat out there anyways for Harvard? Because, um, honestly, I don't want to see the rejection letter. (laughs) But, you know, it's just the big name, the big dog that everyone wanted. He just couldn't see that because it would feel like proof that he's never going to measure up to Obama or JFK. Wow. You know, I find that so fascinating and powerful and painful at the same time, because I think so many different people could look at DeMar and what his thinking was here and come up with different takeaways, because I think a lot of people would say, you know, like he did, that this is sending a message, especially to black kids, that we don't want you here or we don't care about you or that um, we have no incentive to try to, like, welcome you into this community. But it also, I mean, you could argue that what his story says is that up until this point, Black kids have been getting a message that the only way that you are going to get into Harvard is because of a boost from affirmative action. Otherwise, there's no point in even trying or that like that's the only merit that you have in this application process, which I mean, I think it's also a pretty unhealthy message that he's clearly internalizing and feeling. I mean, it's just so complicated. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to talk to him in particular. I thought there's just so many sides of this and ways to look at it. And he... 
he was sort of having to work through all of this in real time. And so he may have started initially really strongly one way with, I can't apply to Harvard anymore. But he didn't immediately decide about Cornell. And that's what ended up being really interesting, is like over the months that I followed him, he was sort of considering, at first it was also a no, no Cornell, no way, I can't handle that rejection either. And then he sort of had to work through over the months of applying to other schools, getting some early acceptances, and sort of getting all this feedback from his community that he's an exceptional kid, which he was getting from teachers, from mentors. While I was visiting him in Atlanta, there was even a state representative who came and said, Damar, like, you're fantastic. You should go for whatever you aspire to. Mm. And he sort of ultimately decided on Cornell. And I was able to call with him actually in the moment that he did this, that he was going to apply. When would you say, whenabouts did you decide, did you have that moment where you were like, yeah, I am going to go for Cornell? Uh, it was actually a student advisory council meeting. I always love the student advisory council meetings. They they always like bring me up a lot as well, uh, because it's just something I like doing. So after those meetings, I'm really like puffed up, and, like ready to take over the world. Um, and I think that was the one where I'm like, you know what? Why not? The worst thing they can do is tell him no. And Damar had sort of come to this point where he was like, you know what, I'm exceptional, I can fly. He literally used that phrase, I can still fly. Mm. And so he decided that a Cornell rejection is not going to define who he is or what he can be. And you know what, why not just go for it? And so he did. Wow. And you were talking about the calculus that so many students are doing right now when it comes to their essays as well and this kind of thorny legal question that even colleges are trying to weigh right now of like how much can they like internalize things that are said in, a, in an essay about the student's race or about how race has affected their life or their their way of viewing the world. How did DeMar navigate that? So DeMar just decided not to mention his race because it felt to him like the admissions officers just had no real incentive to care about it anymore. And so all of his essays, um, as I was reporting on him, up to and including the essay he submitted to Cornell, do not explicitly make mention of his race. They do make mention of sort of where he grew up and the issues he was dealing with and, you know, the resources he had to help his school fight for. And so DeMar sort of figured that by writing in that way, he was coming as close as he could to the issue of race without specifying it and that any astute admissions officer is going to put two and two together. I guess my way of thinking was just having a more universal story. So, like, uh, anybody could pick up the essay, agree with it, read it, whatever. Because, like I said, I didn't really see people having much of an incentive to uh, read it from the race standpoint anymore. So I, um, it was kind of making it a little bit more universal, but you can kind of get the picture if you read a little bit past it. But he just felt like the version of the essays that he was writing, which left out his race, did feel less powerful and less real. Do you at all regret that essay or your, you know, yeah, do you regret not being able to write that essay? I regret that I have had to even consider not making the essay in the first place you know and it's just regrettable that that that's the way things have turned out with uh current state of politics i i feel so invested in the the journeys that both of these students have taken and i imagine what is it considering that it's december they're probably still waiting to hear back from the colleges that they did apply to but is there any indication so far of whether 
these dynamics are going to bear out in terms of actual numbers, either in acceptances of, of students into these like elite colleges of whether you're going to see more white and Asian kids, fewer black and Hispanic kids, um, or even in the the actual numbers who have applied that like you'll see that difference of people like Damar or Cole who decided to apply or not apply in part because they felt like their their chances had changed. So we don't know for sure yet, but there's some data that has been around for a while that shows that when you ban affirmative action, the representation of black and Hispanic students tends to drop at selective institutions. And so you can see that in California, for example, in the UC system, after the state banned affirmative action, you saw black and Hispanic enrollment drop at places like UC Berkeley. And we also do already see that historically black colleges and universities, known as HBCUs, are bracing for a surge in admissions. So leaders at those schools are considering changing some of their admissions practices since the ruling came down. And one of the ways in which they're changing, some of them is considering becoming more selective um, uh, this is sort of to anticipate a huge surge in applicants. One of the points that I've heard raised a few times that I find to be really important and salient is that this Supreme Court decision actually doesn't affect in real terms like the the vast majority of colleges in in America that that educate young people, right? That like um, there's this fixation around elite universities and highly competitive universities, and then a lot of universities like they accept you know the 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 majority of students who apply, and then it's not this sort of like intense environment of like who is going to have the right like mixture of all these things to be able to get in. But you know, hearing from Cole and Demar, it really just reminds you how much. Um, this feels like, for, for young people, like a real statement about who they are and whether they're wanted and whether they're not wanted and what their future is going to be, um, that it's really, that it feels really personal. It did. I think your word's absolutely right. It felt absolutely personal for these kids. And what are your questions going forward of how this is going to continue to basically reshape the, the landscape of college admissions? I mean, I'm really curious to see what happens with acceptances, not only just because I want to know where Cole and Damar might wind up, but how will this actually change the demographics at schools of all kinds? And how will that in turn change students' willingness to apply and attend there? Um, I think it's certainly not going to end with this first round of post-decision applications, right? It's If anything, it's going to be more complex and concerning next year, because at that point, we'll have some data on how this has shaken out and affected what kinds of students go to what kinds of schools. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank you for having me. Hannah Natanson covers education for The Post. If you're interested in reading her story and seeing photos of Cole and Damar, we will include a link to that in our show notes and at postreports.com. This episode was produced by Sabi Robinson. It was edited by Maggie Penman, and it was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. Special thank you to Trinity Webster-Bass. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.